You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, welcome to Culturally Determined on Blogging Heads TV. I'm your host, Arya Cohen-Wade. And my guest today is Katrina uh, Gulliver coming back. Uh, so welcome back, Katrina. Can you please introduce yourself uh, to the audience? Thank you, Ari. Thank you for inviting me back. I am Katrina Gulliver. I think I introduced myself last time as a random Twitter person. I am now a random Twitter person with a substack. So uh, do subscribe. I hope Aria can put a link in the bottom for the page for that. Yeah, so, so um, that'll be linked on the blogging page. But what is the, what is the URL if people uh, are just is, listening to uh, this? And... Very creatively, my name, katrinagulliver.substack.com. And I'm doing kind of a weekly newsletter that's free, and I'm also doing a sort of weekly one that is actually for paid subscribers. Okay, cool. So check that out. And some a couple of the things we're going to be talking about um, are things you've covered in the newsletter. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, uh, the first topic is um, a uh, so an article that you wrote in September. It, came, it uh, published published in Arc Digital. Uh, the headline: Catfishing in the Ivory Tower. Um, so tell us about, about this article. Well, uh, this was uh, prompted by a couple of cases of academics who turned out to be faking their racial or ethnic background in academia. And even since I wrote that, another one has emerged, uh, a white academic from California who was claiming to be Chicano. And she got outed uh, for doing this. And what I was writing about was that this phenomenon of, of white people kind of appropriating an ethnic minority identity has, you know, a much longer history than we tend to think about. Um, it's not just now. A lot of people have been saying, you know, this is people trying to game affirmative action or whatever. And it may well be that there is some element of that. I honestly can't speculate about the motives of everyone who does this. But there's a much longer history of white people, especially in settler colonial situations, kind of adopting a pose of having some connect- connection to an indigenous identity particularly. And I think more recently it's become more fashionable, I hate to say fashionable, but for white people to attempt to appropriate uh, black identity as well. Right. So, yeah, so there's a lot of um, different uh, aspects of this that are interesting. So, I mean, one of them is, um, and you note this in one of the pieces that, um, it, it's often Native American ancestry um, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. someone claims, and uh, and one of the examples that you linked to, I didn't even know, was Ward Churchill, who was this person who was, mm-hmm. if you were paying attention to like the culture wars twenty years ago, whose name may be familiar because he wrote this essay uh, uh, calling the people who worked in the World Trade Center little Eichmanns, mm-hmm. and which aroused this huge controversy. And then, I, then I guess it came out that he had been falsely, falsely claiming Native mm-hmm. ancestry, in addition to being highly, you know, provocative and controversial as well. Um, and then I, I, you didn't mention her, but one must think of um, uh, Elizabeth Warren, who had mm-hmm. a controversy about her uh, native ancestry or lack thereof. And, you know, Trump called her Pocahontas and that um, maybe uh, her, that, that, that whole story and the way she handled it maybe hurt her presidential run uh, in mm-hmm. some way. And, you know, I actually, I, I just, well, it's interesting as, so you are not American, but it, it, it's interesting uh, from outside's perspective, this, I just think it's, it is very deeply in the culture, this idea of having a native ancestor so much that I mm-hmm. was, t- I was told as a child that I had native ancestry and was told stories about, um, my, like my, my great uncle, uh, sort of looking very, you know, Cherokee or something. And, and mm-hmm. even like being accepted by, uh, native Americans who lived like near him as like one of them or something. So I've no, and, and also a crazy story 
that's almost like an urban legend about uh, a great aunt of mine who in her youth was hospitalized for something, had a very high fever and then was speaking in tongues. And they brought in a nurse who was who was Native American and was able to understand what she was saying as native language. So I remember hearing this story when I was a child and it really sticking in my memory because it was so vivid and strange and like scary uh, in a way. And so an adult was must have said this at some point. And I don't know if they believed it or if it was just a story to say to a kid or something. But it was like a specific relative who I knew. And this was this is the story. And all these people are passed away now. So we'll never know if this was if this actually happened or if they believed it or what. Um, but yeah, so, so as a kid, I kind of, I would, I would like tell my friends, yeah, I, I'm, I have some Native American ancestry also. I have no idea if this is true at all. I've never taken the DNA test. It probably isn't true, but lots of people in America believe it. And, um, and not only white people, I think a lot of African-Americans also, mm-hmm. um, you know, have, say they have, based on the way they look or something, that they have Native American ancestry. And, you know, there was intermarriage, not just among whites and Native Americans, but also blacks and Native Americans. Mm-hmm. And anyway, how does this, how does this look? How does that part, part of it like look as someone who's not American? Well, I mean, I, I find it quite fascinating as a sort of sociological thing um, that you notice these Cherokee grandmothers start populating family trees kind of in the middle of the 20th century, I think. Uh, and there's always a Cherokee princess. You'll notice that. I mean, if, if there were that many Cherokee princesses, to be the ancestors of the number of people who claim them. I mean, there would have had to be a population of 200 million Cherokees at some point in America. But it's kind of ridiculous. It's not ridiculous, but it's interesting because it's, I I think you can probably link it to around the time of the 50s and 60s when you started getting the ethnic pride movement, when people started really acknowledging or rediscovering their ancestry. And then you had these people who didn't have a recent immigration history in their family. They felt themselves to be sort of identityless, kind of deracinated white people. And I think that, you know, claiming some sort of Indian heritage, always far enough back to not be traced, you know, it's it's no, no one was ever claiming that their dad was Cherokee. It's always some really distant ancestor, mm-hmm. you know, far enough to be in the, lost in the mists of time was a way to kind of give themselves an identity and a heritage. And I think on some possibly subconscious level, there is that little bit of guilt laundering of white people in a settler environment. You know, you don't have to feel bad about kicking the natives off the land if you are a native. I mean, I'm not sure anyone consciously thinks it that way, but I think there is some level of that. Yeah. And, you know, there's, there's many layers to go into with that sort of the, the socio-psychological element of displacement of indigenous people and, you know, the way that even earlier in the 20th century had all these called Indian name place names given to places and, you know, all these children's camps given, you know, fake Indian names, this way in which native identity or some trappings of it were completely appropriated by white people uh, as a way of representing Americanness, while simultaneously right. actual indigenous people are kind of shoved off the stage. Yeah, there's also there's I mean, there's all sorts of things you can think about. Um, you know, sports teams, the Atlanta Braves and the Cleveland Indians mm-hmm. and the mm-hmm. formerly known as the Washington Redskins. Um, mm-hmm. So even like a racial slur was, was included in there. Although may, unclear exactly whether it was how offensive it was back then. But anyway, um, mm-hmm. and, and just the, you know, uh, Native American iconography, the cigar store Indian and all, like all these things is, oh, yeah. as if treating, treating these people more like objects than, than as people. And, um, and, you know, you know, there's something, I, I probably have the details wrong, but there's something where there was a kind of um, version of, like, the daughters of the, you know, American Revolution of people claiming ancestry from Pocahontas that I, I mm-hmm. believe in Virginia, 
And so these were all white people who were had power and but they like identified as descendants of Pocahontas and the guy who now I can't remember who married Pocahontas. John uh, Rolfe, I think, was yes. the husband. Yeah. Um and and they were like the the power you know, they were like powerful people in, but yeah, they were but it was like, you know, we're I guess it's like not we're not the Mayflower people, we're, you know, descended from like the mm. you know, the, the first Indian Native American woman who like came over to our side kind of Kind of thing. Well, um, it's kind of a twofer, isn't it? Because they're also claiming descent from very early Virginia settlers. So it right. is like Mayflower as well. You know, it's it's a you know we've been here from from the beginning. Right. Element right. to it. Yeah. Um, so then, okay. So then, so, some of these newer cases, um, it's I think some, sometimes it is a native. They're claiming native identity, uh, but also sometimes. Uh, Black or Hispanic or like mm-hmm. Afro-Caribbean identity, yeah. and one of the, the the strangest one. Well, something and they're all all these stories have you know strange and kind of like grotesque elements to them. But one is that there was this woman whose last name was Krug or Krug, um, mm. which who claimed that she was um, Afro-Caribbean. Is that right? I think so. I think she had multiple claims going along. People who had known her said at one point she claimed to be North African. And she settled on a kind of Afro-Latina identity. Okay. But so, it all seemed to be very, very movable. Right. So so if your last name is Krug, you know, you're probably Jewish. Um, and to claim otherwise is strange. And then she claimed that actually it was pronounced Cruz. Yeah. Which is totally bizarre. But, yeah. and, and, but in a way, you can kind of understand how people get away with this stuff. Because, okay, one thing, if someone says their name is pronounced a certain way, you can't correct them. Um, mm-hmm. you know, like that, this is an aspect of identity that we leave up to people. Like I have a strange, strange to pronounce name. And once I tell people how to pronounce it, they should pronounce it that way. Um, so if your name was spelled Krug, but actually say it's Cruz, people are like, okay, whatever, you know, Cruz. And, but then it's even more like outre or rude or something to try to question someone's racial identity in America, at least where it's like, you know, how dare you kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so no one, especially in a, left-leaning space like academia would if there's a person who does it because of their facial features or skin tone or something doesn't really appear to be this but they're saying they're this to try like call them out or something you really need to have the goods or you're gonna look like a total asshole or a fool or something and so some of these cases that they get exposed because like an anonymous person you know writes an essay or something or threatens Mm -hmm. to and then the people confess write their own essay confessing all their sins or something because they're about to be outed. But it does seem like it almost, even though it's, it's, it's a strange scam, it almost is sort of like you can understand how it, or scam, I mean, calling it a scam maybe is the wrong terminology, but strange thing to do, but you can kind of understand how it does work out. Yeah. And I think it was possibly easier to pull before social media, um, you know, before it was so easy for someone on the other side of the country to look up your high school yearbook <laughs> and these various other things that have emerged when these people get busted. And, but I think that, I mean, I've seen quite a few things online of people who are particularly uh, Native American or First Nations in Canada kind of really getting quite annoyed at white people appropriating their identity um, and it's something that's interesting. There's a parallel, and you know, it's not quite a parallel in Australia, where you had a similar sort of nativist iconography, like in the early 20th century, with some of these like native groups, which are obviously white people, they're calling, you know, 
giving themselves somewhat cod Aboriginal names and using some of that iconography. But of course, at the same time, actual Aboriginal people were denied citizenship, certainly were not members of these kind of clubs. And, you know, there was the people who did have mixed heritage tended not to be publicizing that so much because there was absolutely no social cachet to being mixed race. I mean, there was some real discrimination to be faced. And that's kind of flipped, you know, by the later 20th century when suddenly people were actually discovering their heritage and especially people who had the history that similar to many um, Native American peoples of, you know, forced adoption, being taken away, put into residential schools, things like that. People were taken away from their heritage. And so there are people who are legitimately rediscovering that they have this ancestry. Right. And so, again, this does create a current in which fakers can kind of run, you know. Is is there a parallel in Australia of people claiming um, Aboriginal heritage and then are exposed as not? There have been a couple. Um, Certainly there have been a couple of artists who are claiming Indigenous indigenous identity. Um, And I think there are are other people who've had questions raised about their level of Indigenous heritage. I mean, I, I can't judge for sure, but there's certainly been some contentious cases. So, yeah, there's a parallel there. Yeah, and... um... So I think I think I may have mentioned this book to you when we were chatting about this topic before, but um, there's this memoir uh, by uh, the author uh, Bliss Broyard, I think is how you pronounce, mm-hmm. pronounce her name, called One Drop that I read about a decade ago, and it's really a fascinating story. It's really real to- well told. I'd recommend it just to anyone as just a human story. And so it's about her father, uh, who was named Anatole Broyard, and he was a right. well-known book critic. He was a book critic for mm-hmm. the New York Times and kind of public intellectual. And he lived in Greenwich Village, and he wrote, uh, I guess, a memoir that um, I think it's called Kafka Was the Rage or something like that, that is mm. considered one of the best memoirs about, like, New York in the 1950s. He was, he was from New Orleans, right? And he moved north? Yes. And so it, mm. so on his deathbed, literally, he told his children, who believed that they were their father was white and they were white, that actually they were, like, mixed race, mm. and he had grown up understanding himself to be black, and then, like, pa- passed or passed over or something into mm. the white world and never looked back and basically cut himself off from his family... Um, and in order to ma- maintain this new identity. And then, so she goes back to like, you know, the ancestors in like the 1700s, as far as she could possibly go back to tell like the whole story of her family and who these people were and how, you know, the, in New Orleans with, with its mixtures of, of all these mm-hmm. different cultures, mm-hmm. uh, it was maybe less unusual that this would happen, but it's, it's just a really, and so one drop refers to like this idea of one, you know, one drop of black blood means you're black. Yeah. Um, and it's just a, a fascinating story about like, you know, just a personal story of race in America, but it, you know, it's sort of, and then the, uh, I, supposedly the, well, I guess it's, it's unclear, but at least this general idea also inspired Philip Roth in his novel, uh, the human stain, uh, mm-hmm. which is about a, a similar ca- character of a, someone who was a light skinned African American who, uh, reinvents himself as a, a, a white Jew um, mm-hmm. and played somewhat strangely by Anthony Hopkins when they made a movie version of this. But, um, but yeah, it's so, I mean, and there's a, a long history of like this idea of passing or, you know, uh, kind of like the tragic mulatto or something in literature, especially of, you know, the, I, this is the, one of the main characters in Uncle Tom's cabin, right? Is the, the, the woman who flees north, it's like, she looks perfectly white, but like, she's, you know, yeah. but, but she's a slave, uh, because, uh, 
there are, you know, but like, actually she's black and so she, she can never like live a, live a free life or something like, uh, like a free, free in the emotional intellectual sense in addition to uh, being enslaved and having to flee to Canada. Anyway, so there's, I, I just spent out a lot, but yeah, I, I think. Well, that's so, the plot of Showboat, isn't it? That she discovers she has uh, mixed heritage. Oh, I don't, I don't know that one. Yeah, classic, this is a musical? classic Broadway musical, okay. yeah, from the early 20th century. It is precisely in that tragic mulatta mold. She discovers she has mixed heritage, therefore she could not legally marry her lover. And if I remember correctly, he does something like cuts both their hands and holds them together. So he says, now I have your blood and now mm. we can get married. That's interesting. Um, so, so, yeah, so this is, you know, it's like a, it's like a classic theme in the history of America mm. is, is, is yeah, this stuff. Yeah. Um, but, okay, so I guess... Do you have any reaction to that? But also, is it just a coincidence that in this recent spate, uh, these have all been women who have um, who have been exposed for this, or or is something could there be something else going on? I have no idea what it would be, so that's why I'm asking you. I I don't really know. I mean, I think there's obviously a dynamic to people who are coming from the group that has previously had social dominance or social status ripping off the identity of people whose group has had less status, which is kind of gross. I mean, it is extreme, <laughs> extremely gross. And to be fair, I don't think it is just women doing it. I think it's women who've lately been busted for doing it. But I suspect there's quite a few other people, like you mentioned, Ward Churchill. There's got to be other people flying under the radar who've been pulling this stuff. Right. And, you know, they just haven't been caught on it yet. I mean, there was another one. I don't even remember her name. Um, just recently, what didn't make as big of a deal. She was some sort of uh, university administrator who'd been claiming to be Native American. And... Uh, got called on that um there was the woman i think i mentioned before who was the organizer for black lives matter in indianapolis so it turns out is not is not black although she'd been claiming to be i mean these these cases do pop up and i think it's been like i say i think it's the social media element i think it's the job market in academia means that you know especially in the humanities there are so many scholars who have not been able to get an opportunity who have every motive to go digging in on the people who did mm. and find some way to rip them down mm-hmm. um no not to say that you know the people who are doing it don't deserve to be busted but i think that that's that's part of the landscape i think the the uh, crisis in academia leading people to uh, uh you know like i say dig deep on people making these claims okay yeah um, so but, so people people like who didn't get the tenure track position or something yeah. or, or yeah you know, now that they have a reason to like investigate the people who did that 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 makes sense um so so let's uh could you talk about uh what you brought what you bring up in in your uh sub stack kind of mm-hmm. parallel of uh, companion piece or introduction to the main piece which is um kind of the literary aspect mm-hmm. and um talking about the kind of the trope of like going native and um, and how that uh, is, I don't know, a prefiguration or something or a parallel of, of this uh, of this phenomenon. Yeah, well, I mean, this is really a thing of sort of pulp literature from the 19th and early 20th century, various stories with the theme of I was king of the headhunters or whatever. I mean, they're always these very lurid, trashy nonsense, quite a lot of it. And it is typically involving a white man who goes and lives among whoever – to be honest, I mean, these books, these stories all read the same, whether it's Native Americans or South Americans or Africans or 
Aboriginal Australians, whomever. He goes and lives among some tribal community. They adopt him as their own. He, you know, gets inducted as their, their chief or whatever. And it's always this way in which the white guy shows up and in five minutes they've made him their leader. I mean, it's incredibly condescending. Like, of course, the white guy becomes the boss. And, I mean, this is... Returned in popular culture in different ways. I don't know if you ever saw the Richard Harris film, A Man Called Horse, from the 70s. No. Similar thing, white white guy goes native. Um, really violent film. And then Dances with Wolves, which you've probably seen, and I wrote about that a bit. It's very much in this, in this vein, you know. White guy suddenly feels his true identity is to be a member of this ethnic group that he didn't know until five minutes ago. And that somehow this native identity is more genuine than his own white heritage. It's, it's, it's a strange dynamic, but it's one that keeps being repeated through these stories. And you can see it in literature, even going back to The Last of the Mohicans. I mean, Nadi Bumpo, there's debate of, among scholars over whether he is actually of, of mixed heritage himself, because there is a point in the story in which he says, I am a man without a cross which people have read as saying, no, I'm actually white. I'm just living among the Native Americans. Hmm. And, you know, so this theme go, goes, goes a long way back. And yet it's always got this paradox that as an actual white person, he can just walk away at any point. I mean, that's pretty much the ending of uh, Dances with Wolves. He and his white wife, she, she has grown up among the Sioux, but she was taken as a child. Um, but she is white as well. They ride off into the sunset while the, the Indians they were living with get massacred. I mean, it's it's really quite brutal. Yeah, you know, I haven't. I saw that movie as a kid, um, mm -hmm. and I don't. I didn't remember it super well, and I need to rewatch that one and see how it holds up. Um, I was a child too, and I remember it because I went with my parents, and I made the mistake of buying a giant jug of Pepsi, and I sat through the last two hours of that film. Oh, wow. It's very, yeah, it's very long. Well, I, I remember, I think I was a little too young to see it in theaters, but I remember we had it on VHS. My dad liked it a lot, mm -hmm. and it was, I think, one of those double VHS uh, you mm -hmm. know, ones from the late 80s, early 90s. Um, and then, you, you don't mention this, but um, the uh, uh, another, the, the most... Uh, recent uh iteration of this trope is avatar um mm -hmm. the yes James, which James is Cameron dances movie. with wolves but they're blue exactly but, blue. but it's yeah. with aliens and people also noted that um at the time when avatar came out that it was very close to fern gully which was this anime movie that came out in the early 90s um mm -hmm. so yeah so this the, this this trope is and i know if avatar is still the most highest grossing movie of all time but it was at one point so this this trope is um you know, very, very deep in American mm. culture. And, um, and yeah, so the people who, so, so often the, the, the academics are doing this, and maybe we didn't say this explicitly, like they are studying, this is their subject area. Um, mm. And then they kind of do, I guess at some point feel like they crossed, crossed over or, or something. So it's like, they're, so, they're so deep. It's not like they're, so it's not like the, you know, union veteran who is, you know, on the, on the outpost and then like befriends the, the mm -hmm. local natives it's like they are maybe the sociologist who's is like studying the community but definitely as an outsider and then at some point i don't know they, they they're like in so deep that they, um they uh, take it on as as their identity so um yeah well, that's uh, the generous uh, interpretation that it's it, it builds out of this true affinity for the the community that they're studying but in a sense, that's kind of condescending. So what's the cynical? Yeah. So the cynical one is just like, well, I guess you could say 
they had some identification with Afro, you know, the Afro Latina community or whatever, and and then they decided to study it. Um, mm-hmm. And then they're like, oh, I could pretend to be one of these people too, or maybe they. I don't know. It, it's, it'd be interesting to actually talk to one of these people and talk about like when did you first decide to do this? Was it a conscious thing or what? And you know, and you note that often the people who are doing this are kind of like it's almost like a minstrel show in some ways mm-hmm. of them performing an exaggerated version of the identity they're adopting. And, the, and this woman Krug or Krug uh, had this mm-hmm. uh, went also by like. Jessica Bombalera or something like this Mm-mm. and was kind of like extravagant in her performance of like an accent or, so, or, or something along those lines. So there's it's like, really cringeworthy that video. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I didn't watch the video cause there's, mm. yeah, I can't stand stuff like that, but um, yeah, but then it's, and then so that, so yeah, so there's, I guess there's like inherent racism in that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. If you're like doing a minstrel show, but you're actually like, it's your life or, so, or something. Um, yeah, it's strange. I don't know. Okay, do you have anything else on, on this general topic before we move on to another one? No, I mean, as you say, it's it's rather fascinating why people would do it, and I suspect in each individual case there's probably some variation in why. Um, but, yeah, it's 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 weird. And, yeah, it, it's pretty offensive when you think about it. They've, they've basically hijacked an ethnic group's identity to perform it badly, <laughs> you know, and often to present themselves as an expert on that identity, to the community at large. Right. Um, yeah. And then, you know, I like, but as you said, there's probably undiscovered cases of this that maybe are not, the people are not acting so extravagant and, and it will never be known. And that is like a true passing in this, in the like Anatole mm. Boyard sense of living, you know, living a, 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 as a different race. And um, yeah. So I don't know. Well, <laughs> I guess, I guess more of these will, will continue to come out. Um, so, so quickly, um, I think I mentioned I, I was going to take a, you know, a personal privilege point to so we're recording this um, one week after Election Day 2020. And mm-hmm. um, I just wanted to say, you know, a lot of people I, I did an episode with Bob Wright where I predicted Biden will win. I did an episode where with Glenn Lowry that I guess got a little heated where um, uh, we debated whether Trump deserved to win. And, you know, a lot of a lot there's a lot, strong um, conservative audience especially on YouTube for blogging heads. And a lot of them. uh uh, were not so nice to me in the comments uh, based on that. So I just want to say to all of them, uh, Neener, Neener, I was right. Uh, Biden did win. And maybe some of you people out there believe that there was election fraud. <laughs> Trump is going to triumph somehow. That's not going to happen. Uh, Biden won. You can say I had Trump derangement syndrome or not, but it doesn't matter because he's going to be out of here. And uh, I'm sure he'll be in Mar-a-Lago Mar- playing golf every day very soon. Um, so, th- so I just wanted to <laughs> say that. Did you have any thoughts on the on the 2020 election and how it all has played out since then? Uh, not really. I did expect that Biden would win, um, but I don't have a strong comment beyond that. I mean, I'm, I'm pleased as a feminist. I'm very pleased to see that there is going to be a woman vice president. So. Yeah, that's um, that, you know, that's no noteworthy for sure. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, OK, OK. So I, I, I said my piece on that and, and people in the comments can yell at me uh, for it again. So, but there's mm-hmm. another topic that. Uh, you brought up, you've written about it in the past, and it's something that came up uh, in the election, I guess, because um, as to do with drug legalization and, mm. uh, and where I live in New Jersey, uh, decriminalized marijuana. And so, but I guess most, the, the most dramatic one was in, 
Is it Washington or Oregon where where this Oregon, happened? I think. Oregon uh, did, decriminalized hard drugs. Yeah. So that's the first in the United States. Um, and as you were explaining to me, you know, so decriminalization mm-hmm. and legalization are the same thing. Uh, mm-hmm. And so decriminalized basically means, and I, I assume it's for a certain amount, right? Yeah, I think it's for a small amount that they could reasonably be personal use, but oh. you'll still get a ticket, but it's like a parking ticket, not like, you know, criminal charge. Okay, so I, if the cops pull you over and search your car and you have a small amount of cocaine or something, then mm-hmm. they can't arrest you for that. Um, but you can, I believe it, so. But it, yeah. it, maybe it can't be sold. It can't, definitely can't be sold in stores and probably can't be sold openly on street mm-hmm. corners or, or something like that still. Um, but it is an interesting step and... I mean, the tide has definitely turned in terms of drug legalization in the past 10 years or so. And, um, and you know, uh, it passed here in New Jersey. I think it passed two to one. Uh, pretty, pretty overwhelming. And, yeah, so what, what, are your, uh, what are your thoughts on all this? Well, I mean, I think you've got a kind of uh, two groups wanting drug legalization. Obviously, the people who want to take drugs. But also the people who feel like, why am I taxes being spent chasing people down for something that doesn't really feel like a crime? And, you know, they feel a war on drugs has been a huge waste of resources. And, you know, it's a fair point. You know, people have been locked up for fairly trivial stuff. And what I find fascinating, though, as a historian, is how these attitudes have so quickly changed. Because, you know, even in the 80s, it was that marijuana was the gateway drug that, you know, your teens smoked pot. Next minute, they were going to be, you know, shooting up heroin in an alleyway. And, you know, this narrative seems to have at least faded away. But there's always some drug that everyone thinks is somehow terrifyingly dangerous. And at one point, it was marijuana. Like in the 40s, people were putting out stories not even joking, that marijuana sent people into a psychotic rage, that it was this hugely dangerous drug. And then by the 70s, the story was that it was angel dust that was, you know, making babysitters go crazy and murder the kids and things like this. And then you get the stories emerge in the 80s and 90s, you see about PCP, and it's always of super strong criminals who, you know, the bullets bounce off them almost. They, they fight back against the cops. And, you know, it's just these incredible stories that just get told often by law enforcement that these drugs, you know, send people crazy. And then a few years ago, you remember the whole bath salts thing. It was just crazy. The, the yes. People, of course, it was Florida. And some guy tried to eat off somebody's face. Right. Uh, so, so okay, so you wrote a piece on this, which we'll link to from yeah. a couple of years ago. And I didn't even know that the bath salts thing wasn't true. So the guy who famously was found eating another man's face, a dead man's face, and they thought he was on bath salts. He was not actually on bath salts. So what was he no, on anything, I, or was he, he just from another psychiatric issue? <laughs> okay, so he was schizophrenic or something. And I, I, I don't know, but I, he clearly had some mental health problems going on. Okay, but yeah, it wasn't necessarily the bath. He wasn't on bath salts, and but there were these various other cases that popped up of people biting things that were all attributed to using bath salts. Someone bit a police car, and I just, <laughs> it's mm-hmm. hard not to laugh. I mean, I don't know why anyone would do that, but. You know, this idea that this drug makes people do crazy stuff. And like I say, it's moved on from that. We haven't heard that much about bath salts the last few years. The last few years, the sort of drug panic articles have all been about the opioid crisis. But I feel like we're only 10 seconds away from yet another, you know, synthetic drug appearing that supposedly makes people crazy. Right. Because that's the cycle it always seems to go in. Right. So I think so. Yeah. So the bath salts thing, I mean, if it. Was well, just uh, a moral panic to begin with. I, that's interesting. I mean, I think they 
they mostly banned what the thing was from like convenience stores and stuff that was supposedly yeah fueling it. Um, so maybe that led to it. I mean, okay, it doesn't seem crazy to me that there could be certain substances that you take and it makes you act crazy. Like, um, mm-hmm. you know, there, there are people who act crazy in the street all the time and it's just something in their brains making them act crazy. So it doesn't seem uh, strange to me that there might be a synthetic or natural substance that if you take it, it makes you act in that way. Um, so, so this must happen sometimes. Um, but like the reefer madness stuff obviously yeah. was a moral panic, but, um, yeah. if there is, you know, if you swallow bath salts, you got crazy. I, I guess that made sense to me and a lot of other people, but not, is it not, is this not actually the case? <laughs> well, it seems not to be, and it seems to have fallen from the headlines. I mean, when was the last time you read a story about this? If you right. know, if this thing were causing such an epidemic of street lunacy, you know, we'd be hearing about it all the time. Right, but then it, it kind of you can't make your own bath salts, kind of thing. Um, so uh, I don't so, know enough about the, the the chemicals it's supposed to be. <laughs> yeah, or it would be it's too much trouble to make your own bath salts. I don't know. Um, but then you know. There's certainly, yeah, people are talking more about opioids now, but that uh, that does seem to be a very legitimate problem, and lots of people are dying mm. because of that. They're not going crazy um, biting people. They just overdose in a bathroom or something, and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then they, they die. Um, so, yeah, so the the focus has, has definitely moved to that. I mean, I think I actually mentioned this in the previous episode I posted. Um, there was, you know, it seemed like there could have been an opening for Trump to do some sort of realignment on the drug issue um, if he had embraced marijuana legalization. I think the party, I mean, the party went along with him for plenty of crazier stuff than that. Um, and maybe he's just didn't understand it or didn't care or he, I mean, he's an old, old man, you know, more likely to think drugs are bad. So, um, but that probably would have been a smart way for him to win some votes. So it is somewhat surprising that he didn't try something, something like that. And mm. yeah, so the political winds do seem to be shifting, but maybe, I mean, is it that the opioid crisis is a legitimate crisis, whereas the marijuana crisis was a manufactured crisis? I, I don't know. I mean, epidemiologically, it certainly seems that a lot of people are actually dying from opioid overdoses, whereas I think the number of people who have actually died from marijuana use has got to be very small. Right. Uh, but, I mean, the tricky thing, I think, with the opioid crisis, if we look at it kind of historically, is that now we've got a different um, sort of economy of drugs, that so many people are able to buy things online, and that's something that you know just didn't exist decades ago you know people getting things from online pharmacies and all sorts of stuff and that i think completely changes the dynamic of drug dealing and you know drugs in society right so you don't need to go down to the bad part of town on a street corner Mm -hmm. to buy the drugs you could have it delivered to you or you know either through the mail or something or you know it's just you text the drug deal, your drug dealer and they come to you or something mm-hmm. and it just seems like they're stopping by. But um, but also, I mean, I guess another difference with the opioid epidemic is that the conventional narrative is that, you know, there was the, there were these pain uh, painkiller drugs that were overprescribed and mm-hmm. particularly these drugs manufactured by Sackler. Is that, that's at least the name of the family mm-hmm. that was associated with this company and massively over, overprescribed and then that very harsh withdrawal sy- symptoms and then so people get addicted to them and then if they can't get a prescription anymore then they turn to you know um illegal opioids and then and then the stuff with as i understand it <laughs> maybe understand this wrong sometimes fentanyl is cut into the traditional opioids and mm-hmm. fentanyl is like 100 times stronger and so people can overdo- overdose very easily um without knowing what's what's in the drug so it, it's it's not um so yeah so there, there's this you know huge 
pharmaceutical industry angle to the the entire thing that's that is different than um you know wherever PCP people were getting PCP originally. I, maybe I mean it must have been manufactured legitimately originally, I assume, but but <laughs> that changed. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I just find it fascinating that you know you go back 150 years or something, and people could buy opium at pharmacies, and you know governments just moved to ban all these drugs. You know, even up until the 60s, in, in some parts of the world, you had like heroin on prescription, and you know this move was to just make all this stuff illegal, to increase penalties for drug use through the 20th century. This really reactive response to you know, what seemed like, I think in some cases, a bit of a non-problem. Um, you know, I'm not saying that there were no problems involved with, with drugs and street drugs and, street, and, you know, dealers and things, but at the same time, I wonder how many, I mean, these problems were partly created by these things being heavily policed and criminalized. Right, and yeah, so so everyone knows, you know, Coca-Cola once had cocaine in it um, mm-hmm. originally, and, you know, uh, Sherlock Holmes smoked opium, or, or, or did he? Or did he use cocaine? I mean, he he uses. I think he used cocaine. He uses drugs in, uh, that yeah. are now illegal in, in those stories. Um, and you know, in in America, there was this uh, as everything in America a racial aspect, which was like mm. marijuana was. Why do we call it marijuana? Like it's uh, it was coming from Mexico, and like you know, the evil, dirty Mexicans were like like bringing it in and corrupting our white children, you know, something along those lines. So that was part of the scare, and often is part of the scare of when there's like a, a panic over drugs is that like the people uh, using it or wanting to corrupt the children with it are, aren't white. So, um, well, like the opium scare before that, where it was the opium dens were always in Chinatown. Right. You know, the, the same thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so that, yeah, that seems woven into it. And then, I mean, people have been saying that the, one of the differences about the, uh, opioid epidemic is that it's lar- at least maybe Maybe this has changed, you know, five, roughly five or so years ago, it was largely uh, white people in, in, like, parts of the Midwest or Appalachia or the South who were, um, who were using this. And so the, the face of the victims was not, you know, inner city black kid. It was, you know, Appalachian mother or, so, or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. And, and that, like, garnered more sympathy in the media and, and made it seem more like this is a medical issue, not a, like, moral panic, you know, good versus evil uh, think we have to have mm-hmm. a war, you know, de- declare a war on these drugs. Um, did you when you were so when you were growing up? Did you have what was your drug education like? Because we we had Dare uh, when I was a kid, <laughs> which people I think people ironically wear the T-shirts now. That's about the only remnant of it. But it was yeah, I, I, I remember that. Um, I, I honestly I don't even recall. I, I mean, I was a very very boring straight laced teenager, so I I never found out about any of these things. <laughs> Um, I mean, we'll believe that for now, but yeah, I remember the dare thing I remember was that they, a cop would come into the, it was, it was, it was in fifth grade, a cop would come in like once a week for a month or so and give these little presentations. And then, um, and then the cop had a, um, at the beginning brought in like a, a stuffed animal that I think was a lion that was wearing a dare t-shirt. And, and he was like, whoever is the best student will win this stuffed animal. And I really wanted to win it, uh, which I did not. Um, and then I turned to my life of hard drugs. Um, that, that, that was a joke. Um, no, I was a very good boy. And, but yeah, that was, but th- yeah, it was very, I mean, it came out of, this was the early nineties. And so I came out of like the reaction to crack and, um, and other, you know, mm-hmm. Nancy Reagan, sort of the react, uh, you know, don't do dr- just don't do drugs, just say no, whatever 
that stuff was. Um, and I don't know, given the number of people I know who are like casual drug users today, that like the you know it didn't stick, and and the the culture of it has has changed remarkably since uh, since then. Um, I think I don't know if I have any other things to ask on on that one. You said you didn't want to. Do, do you want to mention your crazy libertarian beliefs about, about how we should treat drugs, or leave that for perhaps a, another time, and people will have to uh, tune in tune in again. Yeah, leave that for another time. Okay, um, I think that's I think that's all we plan to talk talk about. Do you have anything else you want to mention or uh, promote or something? Um, not that I can think of. Uh, sorry, I, like I say, I've got my Substack. So if people subscribe to that, they will hear about other things I've written in other places, and generally a bit of a riff on cultural or historical topics. Uh, so check that out. So and it's, uh, it's Katrina Gulliver, one word, two L's, mm-hmm. Gulliver. Um, yeah. Dot substack dot com. I guess if they, people are googling your name, they'll probably be able to find that. Yeah. And. Um, I do not have a newsletter, and I was—I joked a while ago on Twitter. I, I made like a solemn promise that I would never start a newsletter because I'm too lazy to keep up with a newsletter. Uh, so you won't see that from me anytime soon. But you know, people can subscribe to this show and iTunes or uh, wherever your know, podcast app or whatever, or rate and review it if you want to do so. That helps other people find it, and yeah, and uh, or and you can yell at me in the comments about I don't know how the deep state stole the election from Trump or something. Um, <laughs> And, uh, and yeah, so, okay. So, so thank you, uh, Katrina for coming back on and thanks to our viewers and listeners and we'll see you again next time.